Listener Production. Car Sales acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. I think the environment and climate change is a big concern for a lot of people. What we buy, what we do, like that all has a real impact. And that applies to electric vehicles. They don't just look cool or kind of cutting edge, they're doing their part for the environment too. Are electric vehicles really as sustainable as we think they are? I mean, we all hear about zero emissions, but what about all the other parts of a vehicle? Can they be reused, recycled? It's the question we're asking in today's episode. What is the real environmental cost of EVs and does it stack up? Hi everybody, Greg Rustin, Nadine Armstrong with you for another edition of What's Under the Bonnet, which has been getting some real traction too. Thank you very much to all of you who have been listening and sharing. Now, Earth Day is right around the corner, so we'll be taking a look at the real environmental cost of EVs and kind of debunking some common myths too. But before we do this, Nads, what have you been driving recently? Come on. It's been a month of contrast for me, Rusty, from the very understated zero emissions Volvo C40 EV, which I really liked, to the not-so-subtle Range Rover First Edition, which is a (laughs) petrol-powered twin-turbo V8. So, you know, what is it they say about variety is the spice of life? Well, I'm living in it. Most definitely. Coming up in this episode, author, science guru, all-round legend, Dr. Carl. He is standing by. We'll also meet an EVA with a BYD Atto 3. Don't reckon we've actually had a BYD owner on yet, so we're kind of spreading the love with that segment. Now, if you're inner city based and have a few challenges around off-street parking, we've got some good news for you. Charging in that space We've got it covered. Rod Walker from Curb Charge is coming on. And how would you go on a cross-country EV trip, literally between countries, from the Netherlands to Australia, 95,000 kilometres all up? We are going to meet the driver who did it, plus some news, your views and more. As Rusty said, our first guest today is a regular on radio, podcasts and TV He is great at simplifying the science. Dr. Karl Kruzelnitsky has been doing it for decades and has written over 40 books. His 47th book is one called Dr. Karl's Little Book of Climate Science that, luckily for us, has a chapter on electric vehicles. We are thrilled to have him on the show. Dr. Karl, welcome to What's Under the Bonnet. Uh, Dr. Nadine, any any chance to talk about electric vehicles just fills me with joy, Dr. Nadine. Well, you're, you're in the right place. But before we jump into it, you've just been in Antarctica. How did that go and why were you there? Uh, I was there because of too much fun, there must be too much fun, a whole lot of things that i never done. I ain't never had too much fun. <laughs> I was there to have fun. It was my seventh visit to Antarctica. Fantastic. For the first time, I saw an incredibly fast weather change. It went, literally, it went from sunshine to snow and hail and then do that five times in half an hour. So there'd be snow and hail, literally both snow and hail, on the deck of the ship, maybe two centimetres thick, and then suddenly the sun would come out so bright you'd have to put on sunglasses and then it would start snowing again. And repeat five times in half an hour. I've never seen that before. Dr. Carl, Earth Day is just around the corner. Can we sort of launch into this by by taking a bit of a look at the real 
environmental impact of electric vehicles. Now, this is a topic you've covered many times in the past. If we get right to the point here, are electric vehicles better for the planet than internal combustion vehicles? So if you make an electric vehicle using fossil fuels and then you make the electricity with fossil fuels, they are still better than running a car on fossil fuels. You see, suppose you've got a tank with 100, we'll call it, units of energy. If that energy is in the form of fossil fuels, about 30% of it will actually turn the wheels. But if that energy is in the form of electricity, about 90% will turn the wheels. So straight away, you've got an advantage. And if you do the whole of life survey on the energy and materials cost to build an electric car, but still powering it and building it with fossil fuels, electric cars still come ahead. And of course, when you move into making them with renewables and powering them with renewables, they go massively, massively ahead. And they are an essential part of solving the transportation problem of going renewable. With regard to the other part of the transportation problem, which is ships and aeroplanes, almost certainly we'll have to go with hydrogen, and Airbus is already working on aeroplanes for that, and there are electric planes flying right now if you read Aviation Week and Space Technology. We are heading down the right pathway to do good things for the planet with regard to our children and climate change. I think that bigger picture that you talk about, you know, the whole life cycle of an electric vehicle is really important because that's where people are are thinking now. It's not just about tailpipe emissions. It's about how did this vehicle get built? How did it get here, like you say? And then how does it behave on the road? So what are some other parts throughout that life cycle that are really important for people to understand? Well, you've covered the three of them, which are the manufacture and then the making of the fuels. And people are saying that it's impossible. And let me show you how it's not impossible with the example of Bertha Benz. Now, do you know the story of Bertha Benz, Dr. Nadine? (laughs) Go. Come on, Dr. Carl. Tell us. (laughs) Okay, so Bertha Benz was married to Gottlieb Benz. Gottlieb Benz came up with arguably the first practical internal combustion engine car, Gottlieb Benz, Mercedes Benz, you know, the whole thing. He was a qualified engineer and he was already finished working on the Power Wagon 1 and the Power Wagon 2 and he was fine-tuning Power Wagon 3. His wife, Bertha, was actually a really good engineer. But because she was a woman, hey, guess what? She wasn't allowed to go to university. But she was a really good engineer. And she decided, uh, quite rightly, that Gottlieb had been spending too much time tinkering and not enough time test driving. He just refused. He just wanted to tinker it. So one morning, and we don't know when, but in August 1880, one morning, she left a note saying, Hi, Gottlieb. I just took the kids to go and see my mother back soon, bye, and led him to believe that she was taking the train. What she had done was pushed the Power Wagon 3 out of the shed and then rolled it down the road about half a kilometre and then started up so as not to wake him up. Firstly, there were no roads for cars anywhere in the world. There were roads for horses and wagons, but the wheel track was wrong. Secondly, because there were no roads, there were no road maps, and so she took the slightly longer way there to go to visit her mother 100 kilometres away and came back on a shorter route. Thirdly, there were no petrol stations anywhere on the planet. So she went to each village on the way and bought up their entire supply of benzene, which they used as a dry cleaning fluid, and she took it. Fourthly, Gottlieb didn't put a petrol tank in the car 
because he was only test driving it all the he time. He was busy tinkering. Yes, but it did have a very large fuel bowl in the carburetor, so she had to keep on topping it up all the time. Fifthly, he'd never taken it for a long test drive, so uh, it started to run dry on oil, and so in each hardware store bought their entire supply of sperm whale oil. Sixthly, it was pretty bad at going up hills because it didn't have a low gear, so she had to get her sons to push it up the hill and occasionally a farmer. Seventhly, going down the hills, the brakes didn't work because he hadn't really had to worry about brakes, so it was just simply steel on steel. And what she did, being an unqualified but very clever engineer, she cut up her leather handbag and invented the world's first brakes. And very soon we got to the situation where we have 800,000 petrol stations. Now, people are saying, oh, look, we can't possibly have electric cars because oh, there's not quite enough uh, charging stations. Mate, think of Bertha Benz, mate. And, uh, you know, we, we'll get there and we'll get there really quickly. Can we, Dr. Carl, like a real point of contention for some people is the batteries themselves of an EV, the materials that they're made of, how often they need to be changed. Can batteries be reused, recycled, and are they really bad for the environment? Here's a weird thing. If you recycle a lithium, and we're already doing that, the recycled lithium in a battery has better performance than brand new virgin lithium out of the ground. You can recycle the lithium. As we move into renewables away from fossil fuels, the amount of mining that we'll have to do will drop by a factor of 500. Wow. We'll have to do 500 times less mining because we'll be getting energy from the sky and from the environment instead of out of the ground. We have reached the peak of performance with the internal combustion engine and all, I repeat, all the major Vehicle makers, have they're still making the internal combustion engine, but they're not spending any money on research. What you got is what you got, and all their research and development is going into the electric vehicle. What other things, in your opinion, should we be looking at, should we be investing in for the future of you know energy options? Very good point there, Dr Nadine. We should be putting money into it because it will pay off in the medium term and in the short term. Will it, be, will it make everything cheaper in four hours from now? No, of course <laughs> not. Right, But in the medium and long term, the investment payoffs will be better. So what we should be doing is, firstly, looking at lithium. We don't process it in Australia. We just get the dirt and we send it overseas Mm. and we buy it back. So we should be setting up our own lithium processing plants and with regard to the rare earths. So there's about 70 of these elements called rare earths. They're not rare and they're not earths, but they are essential for the new technologies. And they've been essential for a while. China supplies some of them in raw materials but it does about 95% of all the world's processing. Mm. Why? I don't know. We could process it here in Australia. We should start making cars again. While you're, while you're sort of on this path here, uh, you mentioned before about hydrogen and, and some work around um, planes and so on. Are there other energy options that we should be investing in here f- for other things? You mentioned hydrogen. What about even synthetic fuels, for example? Synthetic fuels, no. If you burn anything, you create pollution and you create carbon dioxide. Now, here's the numbers on pollution. In the year 2019, in the whole world, 45 million people died, yeah, for various reasons. Of those 45 million people who died in the year 2019, one-fifth died early from air pollution as a result of burning fossil fuels. So we should be heading down the pathway of, firstly, with regard to transport, 
going for no burning at all. So with regard to transport, 10% is ground transport that can be covered entirely by electric batteries for the whole world. And 5% is ships and its aeroplanes. And in that case, we can burn, literally burn, the hydrogen, because when you burn hydrogen, you get water. But you're better off putting it into the fuel cells. So go to Airbus webpage and look up hydrogen, and you'll see they've got designs for three aeroplanes. One of them is a little puddle jumper, like a Dash 8. It's got little propellers, and it's a single aisle. It'll carry 50 to 80 people. The next one is like a Boeing 737, um, and it's a single aisle, carry a couple of hundred, maybe 200, 300 people, uh, medium range. And the third one is a flying triangle, and that's long range. And they reckon they can have these three aeroplanes flying by 2028 in a test mode and generating income by 2035. Can we finish this more or less with a a look ahead? In your mind, 10, 20 years, what is Australia's approach to mobility really going to look like, do you think? There is a saying, the unofficial saying of the United States Air Force, with enough energy, a pig will fly. (laughs) So if we have a government going one way, we'll be burning huge amounts of coal. And if the state and federal governments go a different way, we'll be burning no fossil fuels. It all depends on how you and I act in our private lives, in our professional lives, and on how we vote. I think you've covered so many things, so so many other areas that really just bring a focus to how big this is. So let's stop thinking about how fun or fast or the zero to 100 times of our EVs for a moment and think more broadly about what this means for the future for our children and their children. Oh, what a wonderful, inspiring comment, Dr. Nadine. Yeah, we knew, Dr. Carl, that we could count on you to, to kind of sift through all the misinformation, give us the facts. For listeners, if you want to hear more from Dr. Carl, head to his website, drcarl.com. You'll find all his books there, as well as the one that we've been speaking about today, Dr. Carl's Little Book of Climate Change Science. Dr. Carl, thank you very much for joining us on What's Under the Bonnet. Thank you very much, Dr. Rusty and Dr. Nadine and Dr. Kelsey. I look forward to doing it all again in the future. <laughs> Our Meet an EVer today is the go-to person in his kind of social circle for all things car-related, especially now that he's the proud owner of a BYD Atto 3. We've had Porsche owners, BMW drivers, Tesla club presidents in this seg, but I reckon this is our first BYD owner. Xing Yu, welcome to What's Under the Bonnet. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about yourself. What do you do for work? What makes you the kind of car person among your friends? What interests me most is, I guess, the underlying technology. So batteries, motors, and just the interior design and all that is is what uh, interests me more than, I guess, uh, big V8s and all that. So (laughs) I do IT. It's very, very interesting work, very engaging. IT and technology, I guess, is a really big part of my life. And I think uh, when BYD announced that they will be bringing bringing this vehicle to Australia, I thought... uh, it was certainly very interesting and it really, really piqued my interest in, in the brand. We can tell that you're driving there now and I think we're on hands-free, which is great. So, hey, quickly, I mean, obviously you enjoy the tech. That's that's obvious from the beginning of this conversation here. What sort of concerns did you have about getting an EV before you, you moved into that space? 
Yeah, so like I'm sure a lot of prospective EV buyers, multiple things were on my mind when I considered this. So biggest one was how am I going to keep this thing charged? Right, because like a petrol and diesel car, like any car really on the road, you need to get your energy from somewhere. Mm. In a normal car, that's a petrol station, which is you get what five every two three kilometers down the road. So with an EV, obviously there's significantly less density with how you get electricity. Yeah, so charging concerns was one of the biggest things. Another thing for us was, I guess, an EV is nice, but we were very conscious of the fact that a lot of brands are pushing out EVs as fast as they can. So we we were also very conscious not to get something that felt like a science experiment. <laughs> so yeah, that, that was also another concern. And finally, I think certainly price, right? Because at the end of the day, EVs are cheaper to run. That's true. But if you're spending like double the price of what you would otherwise have gotten, uh, that kind of defeats the hope. So <laughs> price was certainly also a very big factor for us as well. Have you had to change sort of your lifestyle in any way in terms of road trips or, you know, you talked a little bit about charging, but what are some of the changes you've had to make to, to fit an EV into your lifestyle? Yeah, so you were hear a lot about people saying, oh, you know, because my, my EV only drives 300Ks a day, I've, I've had to do this and do that to try to fit it into my life. But honestly, we haven't really had to make many changes at all. Like, that's probably thankfully because we don't drive too much. So charging overnight, I think, is plenty for us. Our local shopping centers all have chargers at really convenient locations. So if we ever find that we are, in fact, down on charge and needing more than what we have the following day, yeah, we just pop over to a nearby shopping center. Now that you're well acquainted with the Atto 3, what do you love most about it? I think actually it's so because the infotainment screen runs Android, whereas most cars run Linux and, you know, it's very locked down and you have to use CarPlay and all that. This car uses Android 10, which is very interesting for a number of reasons. The first is that you, you can install basically any Android application you want, including the Riverside app, which is how I'm talking to you guys right now, which is very, very cool. Also, I think the interior design, although it's very polarizing for a lot of people, I think it's certainly better than what I would call boring black, which is mm-hmm. what, my, what my Mazda has. Mm-hmm. So yeah, design and technology for sure. Xingyu, as a part of today's episode, we're talking about the kind of real environmental cost of, of EVs. Was sustainability a, a big factor in, in your decision or was that kind of more of, a, a, of an added bonus in the purchase? Yeah, look, I'm going to say with the current climate of EVs, um, I would say that certainly the the climate factor and the environmental impact factor was a contributing factor to my purchase choice. But at the end of the day, I think it really comes down to the immediate cost, like the tangible cost. Certainly for me, an added bonus, as you said. Yeah, definitely an added bonus. It was definitely nice to know that after driving it for, I think, I believe it was after three or four years, if you drive 20 or 30 k's a year, it'll offset the carbon emissions compared to producing a petrol car. So just knowing that is a is a good feeling. Xingyu, I, f- I feel like you've got a pretty good grip on the EV market and, and sort of the, also the, the Australian environment for the EV sort of uptake. But what are some of the things you would love to see in the Australian EV market? What would you like to see happen next? Yeah, so I can see that a lot of people like SUVs these days, right? But I gotta say, if 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 you're not going off roading or if you're not needing that extra ride height for like a practical reason, like you carry a lot of stuff or you're getting old and all that, like we we really should be focusing back on small affordable cars, like hatchbacks, small sedans, possibly small wagons. I like a wagon myself. My family doesn't. They're like SUVs. Um, I would hope rather that uh, brands bring in smaller, cheaper, more affordable EVs so that more people get into them. 
at the end of the day, like that environmental impact, it matches more when more people get on board, right? If you're only releasing, you know, 60, 70, 100 grand cars, you're not releasing it for environmental purposes. You're releasing it because that's the trend right now. And that's what makes money. You are a brave man, a brave man to push against the SUV cohort of Australia. <laughs> but I hear exactly what you're saying. I was just going to say, what I, what I love here is that, that you're actually talking about something Nadine and I have mentioned regularly in this podcast, and that is affordability and, and getting kind of mass market EVs is a very important thing in the whole take up. And clearly that's what excites you about the future of EVs. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. So even though I'm not a big fan of Teslas, but what they've done for the last 15 years has been really, really good, right? So at the start, they promised to release some pretty expensive cars, but that's because they promised to uh, reinvest that money into cheaper and cheaper models. And that's exactly what we've seen. So the Model 3 is absolutely just as of this morning or yesterday received another price cut. I hope they continue on that trend and release something, you know, in the 50,000, 40s, 30s, and all that. Because not everyone is keen on spending 60 grand on a car. That class of small SUV around the 30,000 price range is extremely popular in Australia. So I hope uh, whichever brand brings that kind of EV first uh, be really successful. Yeah. (laughs) It's been super to talk to you because you've brought both kind of a, a sense, which is the whole point of this segment of passion, but also reality, a bit of a, a reality check as well. Xingyu, thank you very much for coming on and sharing a bit of your EV journey with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Greg. <laughs> News time on the podcast. I think we're going to stick with Dr Nadine. That is going to be a permanent nickname, isn't it? A whip out of things making headlines in the EV landscape. And as we record... Nads, we are just days away from the world debut of the Polestar 4. I know. And Polestar are really making some inroads in Australia. They're bringing out great designs. People trust the brand. It's pretty exciting. And another SUV, of course, because that's what we need. Yeah, sleek, kind of mid-sized SUV coupe, isn't it? It's sort of aimed at the Tesla Model Y and the and the forthcoming Porsche Macan EV. I think it's going to be unveiled at the at the Shanghai Motor Show as well. So the teaser shots we've seen so far, which you can find in the article, incidentally, on the car sales website, look really cool, sort of sharp, slimline headlights and so on. Now, speaking of Polestar, the local arm has arranged an Aussie first EV-only drive-in movie night. This is a bit of us. Fun is this? I, th- I think this is great. And this is, you know, Polestar are all about redefining the norms. You know, they want to say they want to reimagine the world around us in a more sustainable way. And they're doing that with a drive in cinema that's powered by batteries. And all EVs can come, you know, if you've got a Polestar, it's free to go, but any EV drivers are welcome. Some spy pics of the new uh, Mini Cooper SE spotted on the west coast of the US too. Looks good, doesn't it? Yeah, what do you reckon? I like it. It looks different. Like they have strayed a little bit. I think it's actually quite a different shape for Mini and, and, you know, this is an iconic vehicle and they have, you know, changed things up. Get online and have a look, people. I would love to hear what people think about this. Picks are uh, pretty cool. Nice blue kind of pre-production version without the camouflage that you often see. And I think it was spotted in downtown LA. So white roof, black alloys. Now, they, the Cooper SE is the EV equivalent of the Cooper S. So due for release May 24. And can't finish the news without this one. The new BYD supercar that can dance. This is kind of wacky, right? It's kind of wacky, and I feel like this is just taking tech to the next level. But yeah, BYD, 
So the thing that stood out for me, and get online and have a read about this because there's so much information about this really kind of clever suspension technology, but it can sort of like drive quite capably on three wheels. As it's driving along, it can monitor the road and apparently sort of hop over obstacles. You know, it's super clever suspension. Let's see how that goes. I think that's really fun and I love the gadgetry and the advancement in this technology, but let's not forget this more relatable headline, naught to 100 kilometres in two Seconds. Crazy. 745 kilowatts. So jump online and have a little look at that. A reminder, the only place to go between episodes for all the latest EV news is our electric vehicle hub, carsales.com.au forward slash electric. There's advice, reviews, pricing and specs, road trip info, all sorts of really useful tips for buying an EV2, plus a little bit of celeb car news and more. It is the electric vehicle hub on the car sales website bumper show this one and normally we would be catching up at about this time on some listener mail and there is a bit in there so for those of you that have either dm'd or or sent in an email we will get to that next month but we wanted to spend a little bit of time on an aussie invention conceived in the backyard effectively of a shed about four years ago and this nads is on a subject you are kind of a bit passionate about for people that don't necessarily have access to a garage to use their own electricity for um, for EV charging. Yeah, you say passionate. You're allowed to say that I complain a lot because you've heard <laughs> me complain many times about my frustrations with public charging infrastructure, particularly for people like me who don't have off-street parking and therefore cannot benefit from that holy grail of EV ownership, that overnight charging at home, right? Exactly. Now, Ned's caught up with Rod Walker from Curb Charge. Have a listen. Now, Rod, you've told me sort of you know, quite simply that you saw a problem, identified an opportunity, and you came up with a solution. So talk us about those really you know, humble beginnings, you know, when it was a concept on paper and, and how it came to be in your, in your backyard shed. Look, always wanted to do something in the environmental space and look in another life. I'm a public accountant. I've been a public accountant for 40 years. I found myself thinking, how do people charge their electric cars who don't have off-street car parking? If you don't have a garage, you've got some serious problems. You've got to go to a public charge station. It's not as convenient. It's more expensive. It's just not as good an experience. So I wanted to try and duplicate the experience as close as I could get it to the person who has a garage. So power's got to emanate from your house. It has to go underneath the footpath because in order to access it, it's got to be at the curb. Because it's going to be outside, it had to be out of stainless steel from, from my sense. It had to be floodproof, not waterproof, a 32-amp, 7.2-kilowatt unit. And when I got to that point in my mind, I put some drawings together and went to a a mate who is a fabricator and said, can you knock a couple of these up? And he did. And, of course, they were pretty poor, the first couple, but I kept on trying. I've got a client who's pretty senior at Melbourne U and I asked them who their patent attorneys were because I figured I'd be breaching a patent and need to have a check. They put me on to Davis Collison Cave, the biggest, probably one of the biggest in the country, and one of their partners was kind enough to give me half an hour. I went into his office and crawled around the floor and put my bits and pieces together and he said, oh, this is a pretty cool idea. I don't see accountants coming into my office, so I'll, I'll let my guys loose on it. And six weeks went by and he called me back and said, well, we've looked and we've looked all over the world and we can't find anyone that's like yours, so I want to get you a patent. And that's when it really started. So it was six months' work with Sam, who was the patent attorney, and then simultaneously Energy Safe Victoria and testing laboratories because the thing had to be certified to be 
safe and floodproof and all of the other requirements when you're working outside with electrical devices. And I, I just went through that whole process and then it was just a matter of solving problems one after the other as you just come up with them. Then it was councils and, you know, I found Port Phillip were the ones that were, were keen to have a crack at it and I've been with them now for just on three years. We've got our first couple in the ground. Rod, you mentioned you've started with the city of Port Phillip and you've you've done a lot of hard work to get this over the line. Tell us a little bit about that process and maybe some of the prerequisites from the council's perspective. Because councils are always risk averse, it's been a very tortuous journey to get this far. I mean, I'll always be grateful to the city of Port Phillip for picking it up. They had to be brave enough to go forward with it. Assuming the council approve it in their area, the homeowner says yes, we come out and take photographs of it, work out a a pathway, a correct pathway, because every house is different. Then we make the application into the council on behalf of the person. We do dial before you dig stuff. We use uh, non-destructive digging when we go across the footpath to get over any problem of, of infrastructure damage. So we use water pressure rather than mechanical. We do it all in a day. It's in and out in a day. Cost is about $6,500. You tell us you want it in, we'll do the application, put it in the ground for you. And it's connected to your house, so it's yours. Once we get past the trial, that um, I'd be very surprised if councils don't pick it up because it's such an advantage for the councils. And look, the, the demand is there. City of Port Phillip's got two public charge stations in the whole of the municipality. I mean, and that's duplicated throughout Melbourne. My model's a bit like having a mobile phone. Imagine having to come home, instead of being able to connect your mobile phone whilst you're home, you've got to go down to Coles and plug it in down there and wait to charge it up. I mean, that's the simile. How awesome is that? And I love the fact that this is happening in our own backyard. That has the potential to be a game changer for a lot of people, doesn't it? Sure is. And if you want to find out more, please visit Curbcharge. Head to their website, curbcharge.com.au. We have a very special guest joining us today. You might remember him as the Dutchman who drove from the Netherlands to Australia, over 95,000 kilometres in an electric car. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's a trip that took three years from 2016 to 2019. He calls himself a sustainable adventurer, which is very fitting for this episode. <laughs> and he joins us now. Weber Wecker, thank you so much for coming on What's Under the Bonnet. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I mean, you know, where to begin, but let, let's just start with what inspired that trip back then? You know, has sustainability been this priority for you or was it EVs? Yeah, honestly, at that time I was not, not super sustainable. I was a student. In the final year, I started to look a bit more at what was waiting for me and uh, I didn't feel ready to start like the normal nine to five life, married with children, etc. And I really wanted to, to see the world. And I was hoping to do that as long as possible and, and, and as far as possible. But uh, yeah, as a student, I didn't have any, any money. And I maybe had just enough money to go to, to Brussels. But my ambition was, was a bit higher. Um, so I thought, okay, now if I don't have any money, I make that my strength and I want to go travel without any money. But I thought, like, if you do it without money, you need to rely on other people. So you need to create some kind of value for people to, to go support me. This was 2014 when I started to, to work on this. And then sustainability became a bit of a team. And I was not really a sustainable guy. But, yeah, sustainability definitely sounds good. It opened up doors. So I basically grabbed the sustainability team as a higher purpose linked to my desire to, to go on adventure, honestly. Also, people st- just started to talk about electric cars back then. There were a lot of prejudices. People thought they're not 
reliable and you cannot cover long distances with them. Electricity is basically everywhere. So why should you not be able to drive on to, to the other side of the world? So I made that a bit as my mission to head into the world to prove that electric mobility has uh, the future. And yeah, my proof will be that I can, can drive on to Sydney to, to literally the other side of the world from the Netherlands. A duchy with a sense of adventure and, and someone for which, you know, sustainability then maybe became a focus. Can we talk? Can we talk about the car, the Blue Bandit, an electric conversion Volkswagen Golf? The battery that was in it, not much by today's standards, Viva, was it? It was a, a 37 kilo, kilowatt hour, hours battery. And uh, so that gave me maximum 200 kilometers range. It was a retrofitted car. It was very, very basic. Didn't have any high-tech features like self-driving or AI or whatever all the, these cars have nowadays. But it still was a, a lovely car. Like I really grew a bond with it uh, over the years. Very limited. Didn't they even have DC charging, AC only, and seven kilowatt maximum. So the minimum that it could charge was in like five hours. For those that mightn't remember, just refresh us or tell us, if they don't know, about the route that you took to get from the Netherlands all the way to Sydney. Yeah, so the, the route was completely determined by, by other people because I didn't I did it without money. I asked people to plug me in, as I call it, with, with energy. So on my website, plugmeinproject.com, people could drop a pin on their map and then select a location awesome. and then offer me a meal or a place to sleep or electricity for the car. And based on these offers, the route was determined. So every week I would look on the map, see what's offered nearby, and then basically yeah, travel from plug to plug. So when I started, I had no idea how or even if I would reach Australia, but I thought, I just, I thought I'd just start driving and see how far I come. So I went from the Netherlands to, to Italy. So that was already south, but south of Italy, there were not enough people who, who sign up to continue smoothly. So I turned around and drove from Italy to, to the North Cape, which is Europe's most northern point, all the way in the north of Norway. At some point, I posted a, a map of, of my route on my social media, and people started to call me the, the Forrest Gump of automotive. <laughs> like, drive, drive, people drive. And I basically kept going all the time. And uh, yeah, so I crossed the world in the most strange way, like Eastern Europe, Turkey, Iran, Middle East, India, Unreal. Southeast Asia, and eventually reached set foot in Darwin after over two years, two years and one month, and then also crossed Australia in a not really logical way, like going from Darwin to Perth and across the Nullarbor and then up again to Alice Springs. And then, anyway, it was a long trip. <laughs> yeah. You've covered, uh, you know, just from telling us that route alone, but in Australia, you've covered some incredibly diverse terrain and conditions. And I understand that the journey through Australia was actually one of the toughest, particularly around range anxiety. And I've looked at you know, lots of your videos documenting your journey and, yeah. and in particular that one, yeah. that trip into Coobapedi, you know, oh, yes. mighty long oh, yeah. stretches of <laughs> yeah. road, not a lot in between yeah. towns, if you can really call some of those places towns. I think you managed to squeeze 235 k's on one day and, and then yeah. I saw someone giving you a toe. Tell me about that process in, in the middle of nowhere in Australia. Yeah, definitely. The, the red centre of Australia was by far the most challenging part of, of the whole trip because indeed some, sometimes from, from one point to another was more than the range of my car, my 200 kilometres range. That trip to Cooper Pity was 255 kilometres. So that morning I knew like I'm going to drive today and, and I'm not going to, to make it to, <laughs> to my destination. So I needed to do everything to save as much as energy as possible. 
I looked on, on my phone on the, on the weather app and I saw that 12 hours later, I would have a tailwind. So I waited 12 hours to get that tailwind. <laughs> and then, That's uh, awesome. Uh, <laughs> and then I drove 60K all the way, which is the most efficient pace. Yeah, so road trains were not really my friend that day, but yeah, I had to do everything to, to save energy. And I did, did a record like 235 kilometers on one charge, which was as far as I ever came on, on that car. And then, yeah, I just got out of the car, put on some sunscreen, put my thumb up and then and wait for somebody to, to pass by in the outback. Like there are not many people there, but definitely every 10 minutes or something, somebody is there in the outback. They definitely stop for you. Then I tell them like, yeah, my battery is empty. Can you tow me? And then tow me to the next place. And the good thing about electric cars is if your car gets towed, then it recharges due to uh, regenerative braking. So they towed me to, to Cooper Pili and then I said, uh, thank you. And then I waved off and then waved and then drove off. And he gets some weird faces because they are like, hey, <laughs> told me your battery. He's been stooging us the whole way. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for the charge. Yeah, but how different do you think it would be now if you were to embark on a journey like this now? I know we've got public charging, but can you imagine doing something like you did that in 2023? Yeah, I think it will be much easier. In the past years, I've been doing some road trips in Europe. Back in 2016, when I was traveling to Europe, that was already challenging because even in Western developed countries, there was hardly any infrastructure. But yeah, now last year I drove to Oslo, which is about 1500k from here. And I did that in two days and with a blue bandit in that time, it would have taken me two weeks or something. That phrase, sustainable adventure, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But what, are, what does it mean to you, given the journey that you've been on? Yeah, um, what I just told that I set out with this journey more like as a, as a tool with a sustainability team to, to travel for free. But I did promise everyone that I, I would visit sustainable initiatives everywhere around the world. And because of that, I saw with my own eyes how destructive we are to our planet. So basically changed from an opportunist to someone who yeah, definitely cared about the environment and maybe slightly of an activist because at some point in all my interviews, I was telling like how important it is to switch to more sustainable forms of mobility. So since I returned home, I really try to incorporate sustainability in my, in my daily life. Traveling is, is a big, still big aspect of what, of what I'm doing. So it's the most polluting part, basically, in my life. So I really try to do all my travels as sustainable as possible. So I have the rule that within Europe, I, I don't fly. Right now, I mostly travel because of I give presentations uh, around Europe. So then every time I try to get there, by, by train or like an electric car, for example. Sometimes I take it a bit to the extreme. So last year I was invited to speak in Dubai about my trip. So I thought, yeah, it doesn't make sense to fly to Dubai to speak about a trip I did to promote sustainable mobility. My car back then had become a museum piece. And so I thought, okay, let's take the train. So I took the train to Dubai from Amsterdam. It took me like 17 days to Amazing. get there. And it was, uh, <laughs> wow. yeah, that was, that was sick. And, uh, yeah, it was turned out to be, an, a, a, again, an amazing, amazing adventure. Um, so and now I try to take on new challenges like that every time. New challenge with a new sustainable form of, of transport. And uh, that leads to new uh, interesting stories uh, every time I do it. What I do find important is that I hope that people uh, investigate themselves what, what sustainability is, because it's definitely a, a very important theme that affects us all. So I hope to achieve that and it's super important because the transport sector is good for 20 percent of our global emissions so so that's huge 
So obviously, like if we electrify that, we tackle a big part of that. Yeah, so that's why I'm still trying to do that to to show people that electric mobility is, is possible. We um, read a lot of stats in the lead up to this. And one of the stats, once you got a lot of worldwide media coverage, I think it was over 400 different ways to uh, pronounce your name? Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How are we doing? Are we adding to that stat? How are we doing? Viva Wecker. Viva Wecker. It's close. It's uh, Viva Wecker. In Australia, they often said like, Weed Wecker. (laughs) (laughs) There's always going to be some humour in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, from all of us to you, what a story. Uh, It was... 1,119 days, 33 countries, 95,000 kilometres in an EV. You have not only completely transformed the whole road trip as we know it, but you've spread a really important message about sustainable mobility too. So thank you very much for coming on What's Under the Bonnet today. Yeah, my pleasure. That is it for this episode. Man, we covered some ground today. Next month, we're going to look at the second-hand EV market. Would you buy one? Nads, come on. Would you know what to look out for and what is good value? Things like that. Yeah, and I think this is something we need because we've complained about prices of EVs for a long time, but the second-hand market is the fuel we need for that, isn't it? It's more affordable EVs. And second-hand EVs, they're not going to be very old, so they're still going to be great vehicles. I think, I think it's really going to be that tipping point for a lot of people to get into the market. And Rusty, you've been hanging out with a, a Kiwi rally star, Hayden Patton, who's pioneered an amazing EV rally car. He's actually had that uh, in Adelaide for a, uh, a classic meeting recently, uh, just prior to the Formula One Grand Prix. In fact, impressed a lot of people. And he's done some groundbreaking stuff in that space. So we'll tell you more about that perhaps in a forthcoming episode. We're out of time. Big thanks to our producer, Kelsey, and to Romy in the studio as well. All of our car sales team, especially to all of you who listen as well. We are thrilled with the growing audience this pod has. We'll catch you next time, everybody. Bye for now. Listener.